Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams. The man who's going to be joining me today, he's caddied at the highest level, but that's not what he does for a living. He writes about the game. He's written several very important books about the game of golf, and he's got a new one right now, The Ball in the Air, A Golfing Adventure. He's a contributor to the Fire Pit Collective. And when it comes to writing about the game and having thoughts, like important thoughts about the direction of the game and the important figures in the game, there is nobody better than the man who's going to be joining me in just a moment, and that is Michael Bamberger. Today's Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. You might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that on average, a focused group of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we welcome in the author himself, Michael Bamberger. You could write about anything. You have written about virtually everything in the game of golf. You've probably already been asked since the the book launched, The Ball in the Air Golfing Adventure, why? Why these three people? And let me just say out front, it's not just three people. This is about four people, the author mm-hmm. included. And I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on the author because people can read about the other three. But why? Why did you choose these three people to focus on? Well, there, you could say the three ordinary people. Of course, one of my MOs in life is there, there are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary stories that if we dig deep into the life of anybody, you had a young person walking behind you, I saw before, I assume he's your producer. I guarantee if we dig deep into that young person, we're going to find a story to tell because that's true for every single person on this earth. But what I try to do in this particular book, I've got a wonderful editor, and I, Gary, I know you're working on a book, and I would point you to him or anybody who's interested in, in writing about golf. His name is Joe Ferrari Adler and um, uh, at Simon & Schuster. He's a good golfer himself. And and Jofi had the idea that with Liv coming on and other things in the game and all the money, 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 money of, of professional golf, wouldn't it be a great time to celebrate the amateur game? That's basically all he said. And on that basis, I thought you and I are of an age, and I think probably people still use this age, this expression today, that golf is the game of a lifetime. It's a cliche, like a lot of cliches. It's absolutely born in truth. You and I have seen the life and times of Arnold Palmer, Lee Trevino, Big Jack himself, Furman Bisher for me in the, you know, as a, oh, as yeah. a sports It is the game of a lifetime. So how could I actually express that idea that has enriched my life so much in the way of storytelling, which is what I try to do. And then I found these three particular lives. They're in different acts of the three people are in very different acts of their lives. Uh, and very briefly, one is a young woman who, grew up in poverty in Nepal. And some people would know her story because she was featured on ESPN at one point. 
her name is Pratima, and she's now a Cal State LA senior. She was on the golf team there. And a big tip of the hat to uh, the writer Oliver Horowitz uh, from Golf Digest, uh, who was really the first person uh, uh, to see her and write about her. Um, and then um, a colleague of ours, in a sense, uh, uh, the, the writer uh, Ryan French. People don't know that name. They do know him under this name, the Monday Q guy. And uh, Ryan is in middle age, is in his mid-40s. And his life was going down a very chaotic path. And Gary, I know you know a lot about that and have yes. a lot of sympathy for that. And you've already written, I think publicly, about how you were drawn to uh, to Ryan's story. Um, to say it was a chaotic path is, a, is a really a gross understatement. Um, with a lot of help and golf being a big part of it, he found his way to a much saner, healthier life. And then the third person, and I know... You know this person as well, Gary, and some some of your listeners would. It's a 88, soon to be 89-year-old man. Well, not soon. 88-year-old uh, man named Sam Reeves, um, who is a legend in the cotton business uh, for as a cotton merchant. When China opened up its doors to the American cotton markets, he was there knocking on the door. But he's befriended many, many people in the game. But we have this idea of the super wealthy and the super successful of who they might be. Uh, whatever that cliche idea is, this guy is not that at all. He's one of the deepest, most philosophical, most sensitive people I've ever met. And he represents, you know, the third act of a golfing, of a golfing life. Uh, and he, I've learned so much uh, uh, from this man. So you take these three lives, you intertwine them. And I think the reader will come away, I hope, with uh, a, a maybe hopefully a deeper appreciation for a game they probably already love or they wouldn't pick up the book in the first place. They will. Uh, having read the book, um, and it's interesting, I, I, when I say I know two of the three people, um, I obviously know of Ryan quite well over the last couple of years because he, he built something that was almost, um, we didn't realize what a necessity it was to know about all these dreamers uh, that that make the effort to to try to get to certain levels in the professional game, and the Monday Q became something that I at Golf Channel told our researchers like, do you guys follow this guy? This was you know five six seven years ago, and they're like, yeah yeah yeah, he's really good. Uh, he's not just really good. Um, he's he's really remarkable at, at what he's done. And then by that, he carved out this niche with the outfit that you're a contributor for, the Fire Pit Collective. He's he's just most recently embarked on the, his own next chapter uh, with some independence of doing what he's doing. And I know that he's going to get the support that he needs because he does such damn good work. And then Sam Reeves. Sam Reeves, I would describe him as a friend of the game. He mm-hmm. He has such you know, deep relationships with people of all ages in the game, people who played at the highest level, uh, people who have invested in the game intellectually, financially for, for decades and generations. He could play. He has a vitality about him at 88 um, that I, I think is not matched by many people his age. I actually ran into you in Monterey, California last year. I didn't realize you were working on this book. When we saw each other, you're going to spend some more time with him. And then yeah. the young lady who, who, like you said, I mean, her family lived in the maintenance shed. Um, I think it was Royal Nepal Golf Course. Uh, she found her way to the United States to play collegiate golf. And you're thinking, why would I be interested in these three people? I don't know who they are. Just read it, and you'll find your, yourself pulled in 
by their own journeys and, and the ways that, that golf has intersected in their various lives. And like you said, they all, we all have these acts. You, sir, I think are just beginning act three of your own journey through this game. And I, let, me, let, me, let me talk about you because I know you say it's about that you, you share about your own journey in this game going back to, you know, Mr. Greenlee's eighth grade gym class. Why do we always remember, Michael, the name of our gym teachers? <laughs> and the girls who didn't take, the girls who said no when we asked them to prom. Correct. That too. They're, they're, they're emblazoned. It's usually like a hyphenated name, like, you know, Mary Lou. Mary Lou something. <laughs> Maybe I'm dating myself. <laughs> but Mr. Yeah, Greeley, his gym class, that is the first time you put a golf club in your hand. Your dad did not have an affinity for the game. He loved the outdoors, but golf yeah. was not something. So why? Why for you early on? Explain. Well, now this is a mystery unto itself. Uh, and we could go deep on this, although no one's really figured it out. But I kind of do believe there is a DNA strain for golf. Uh, you know, I think the PGA Tour is trying to sell golf as some wildly popular sport. I think it's a niche sport. I think it always has been. I think it always will be because it's so hard and so unlikely. They did the little tiny ball, the big crazy playing field. What's this beach doing in the middle of the fairway? Why is the green like this? It's raining, but you're still playing. Really, none of it makes sense, but some people are just crazily drawn to the game. And in my life, you know, thank goodness for Mr. Greenlee coming into my life and exposing me to a game that I might not have ever was been exposed to. Why I got bit by the golf bug, I don't know. Gary, you got bit by the golf bug. Millions of us have, but many millions more, many, many, many millions more have not and never uh, and never will be. Um I think there's a slight OCD strain that goes no doubt, and um, but a lot of other things as well, including uh, uh, patience and resilience, drive, fortitude. Um, it's not for everybody, but it's not for nothing that we can get on a plane and sit next to somebody with whom we might have not have anything in common except for he or she is a golfer and suddenly it's a three hour conversation and you next thing you know, you're at Pobby airport or wherever. Uh, so um, anyway, yes, you're nice to note, Mr. Greenlee. We always use the honorifics when talking about our middle school gym teachers. Who is your, who is your eighth grade gym teacher, Gary? Mr. Moran. Okay. Well, there you have it. Yeah. I mean, he's just, I mean, that's just, there are certain things. First of all, I think it was because it was one of the few activities during the academic day that you look forward to. Um, and I wasn't averse to learning, but, but Jim was, was such frivolity. I mean, it was like, good grief. When are we going to get to gym class? Um, uh-huh. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I can go through the various stages of my academic life and remember all the physical education teachers. And first of all, I, I didn't, I wasn't inclined to appreciate them. Then I sure as hell do now. Um, because of, you know, they were devoting time to, to kids who, you know, a lot of us were goofing off. Let's be honest. I mean, we, right. we just were. Um, right. And they, they kind of held some level of discipline together during that 45 minutes to an hour. Right. And, and, and hopefully you got something out of it. Um, no, there's no doubt. I, I also was, as you shared some of the little anecdotes 
of your infancy in the game, the fact that you had a five iron stamp with the name Leo Deagle is you. <laughs> how many others did? How about the idea that the metal shaft was painted brown in case the whole steel shaft thing turned out to be a fat? <laughs> but people are going, I have the Leo Deagle. What a what a cheap set of clubs. The guy was a great player. Guy won a couple major championships, was on four Ryder Cup teams, but you got his clubs. I, I don't know how many others played the five iron of Leo Deagle. <laughs> and it had, it had a black leather grip on it, and the grip was about as thin as a dime and hard <laughs> as an absolute rock. How I actually held on to it, how I never clocked anybody, you know, and followed through it, had things just slip out of my hands. But that was my mom. You know, she saw that I had the interest, and, uh, you know, I... I I don't mean to say this next like, sentence lightly because it's not a light sentence, but I, the way I say it, it comes to light. My parents fled Nazi Germany as kids. They weren't expecting to have some son who was going to turn into a golfer and later, you know, someone who wrote about golf. It was all sort of an accident. But my parents did have the thing that, you know, I know many of our parents had, which is uh, help the child explore his or her enthusiasms. And uh, so for that, you know, my parents have died in the past few years, but uh, I was just so lucky to have the parents that I had. And my, we lived in a small town on the South Shore of Long Island and I had a, I think it was considered a Salvation Army, but one of these sort of, you know, yes, no, it definitely was the Salvation Army. Where I can see the people out in front ringing the bell in winter, you know, different towns have these different kind of sure. shop. And you go in there and, and there was a little sports section where you could get cleats or, you know, whatever, uh, old baseball gloves and uh and they had some golf clubs and my mom went in there uh and got that's got it was enough to get me started well you 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 know where you played um at bellport bay you would you would play two balls you you were smitten and and one of the things that drew you in was the 1974 u.s open for me it was six years later i went to the 1980 u.s open at baldestraw oh, wow. with my dad and, I and, forgot you were a Jersey. I yeah. think you were born in Connecticut, but you're really a Jersey boy. I'm a Jersey boy, Ridgewood, New Jersey. And my dad, okay. who who was very had a lot of moxie when it came to you know how to get the right seat and and so on and so forth. I wanted to I wanted to see Nicholas, and he said, "Son, you're not going to see anything. There's going to be too many people." So he said, "Why don't we follow this guy Fuzzy, who just won the Masters in '79? He was paired with Weiskopf." So Weiskopf goes out and shoots 63 on that Thursday, and Jack was a couple groups behind him and shot 63. I saw Watson make a hole-in-one on the fourth. I saw Crenshaw for the first time. He was my guy. Saw Seve in person. It had me. I was, I was, you had me. I'm all in at that point. But what was it about Wingfoot in 74 that drew you in? Well, I was the, it, for, the very first thing was I was just starting in gym class, in, in Mr. Greenlee's class. But our family, we were big newspaper readers. And so the idea of this, yeah, so Patchogue, where I grew up to Wingfoot, might be about 70 miles as the crow flies. And just the idea that that these famous athletes were, you know, playing this sport that was in our house was sort of mine and mine alone because my brother was a baseball guy. I was too. And my, you know, my parents were doing their their own thing. Uh, uh, so I think just say, uh, I loved reading the sports page. And then, uh, so the combination of it being in the sports page, being on TV, me taking a golf 
you know, I certainly would have known the names Trevino, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, all of whom were, uh, were, were major figures uh, uh, in that event. Um, Hale Irwin, I know, uh, but I did not know the Hale Irwin. But I was just drawn, as I think as we all are, uh, to the bigness of it. And very soon after that, I started watching golf on TV, as I'm sure you did. And then I realized that it was a circus, that it was literally a traveling circus. And Raymond Floyd used this. And Gary, you were kind enough to talk with me in the, in the past about another book I've written called Men in Green. And Men in Green's about these, some of these iconic golfers of the 70s. And, uh, and, and Raymond Floyd figures in the book. And one of the things Raymond, Raymond says in the book is, we were gypsies. And that's like nobody today, if you said that to Patrick Cantley, he wouldn't, he might get the phrase, but he wouldn't live that, doesn't live that life. They're not gypsies. But those guys were gypsies. And uh, and I remember really being somewhere around, not 74, but very shortly after that, who are these people that just travel? And then who are the caddies alongside with them? So I got, you know, that whole runaway enjoying the circus thing, that, that landed in me at a young age and it landed deeply. Yeah, I mentioned in the open that you you caddied in three majors in 1985, um, and and I believe it was one of your editors who who was he was impressed by how you could travel on the cheap, and you and you figured out a way uh, to 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 see the game in a in a, a really particular way, um, and I think you saw it, Michael. You know, I've always felt like I had an appreciation. For the challenge, the singular challenge, you, nobody else can swing the club except the, the player himself. And as much as we, the, the caddies have become stars to, to some degree in today's game. And you, you know a lot of the players from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. They're like, just, you know, show up, keep up, and, and, and that's your job. And now we, we want these conversations. And these, these caddies have endorsement deals on their sleeves and on their visors and on their hats. But when you caddied, Michael, did you did you see this like this pursuit is so challenging? And did your appreciation of the game get greatly enhanced by that view of the game? You know, I, I've never counted up the numbers. It, it wouldn't be 100 uh, uh, different professional tournaments. You know, so I was never a real caddy like, you know, you think of uh, John Wood or, or, you know, my friend, Neil, our friend, Neil Oxman. Um, you know, uh, uh, the late Bruce Edwards and many sure. other caddies have gotten to know over the years. But it was definitely enough where I got a real appreciation for what they do. But there's a lot of it just being so close to it. And just to go back to Ryan for a second, a lot of the guys that caddy for people are like, you would know this name, but many of your listeners wouldn't, Billy Britton, uh, uh, who are always sort of, do you remember that name, Gary? Oh, he's a Jersey guy, of course. Yeah, yeah, Staten Island and then Jersey. In fact, I caddied for him in 85, as you're speaking. The Met Open, I think it was won by George Saringer that year. I'm not sure about that. George right. Saringer, I will tell you this, just as an aside, yeah. when he came to Ridgewood uh, for an event, I thought I was looking at Jay Gatsby. I yeah. mean, I, I, he, was, he was right out of central casting, the career yeah. amateur, uh, you know, had the job, made the money. Uh, but but was so refined. No, he was the guy. Yeah. You know, something I think maybe he was the defending champion and or maybe Billy played with him because they're both defending champions. But I know we played with him. That is we played with him. <laughs> but uh, so a lot of my experience in golf and my appreciation for the difficulty of the game and for staying on the game, the very things that Ryan's talking about 
just as a quick aside, you know, I caddied for a guy in Europe named Peter Terabane, and, and he was like, oh, for his career, and then he won a tournament. And then out of the blue, he like, he missed 10 or more straight cuts, and then he won the Czech Open. He won 100,000 pounds. His quote at the time was, now I'm up to broke. And uh, and then Colin <laughs> Montgomery, of all people, said, how'd you do it, Peter? You played in all these events. You missed cuts, many, many more cuts than you he missed many more cuts than he made. How did you finally win this tournament? And then Peter said, well, there's been a lot of 36 holes where I needed a par to make the cut. I just pretended I was trying to make a cut. That was his mentality to winning this check open on the 72nd hole. And as Peter tells the story, you know, Monty just walked away scratching his head because he's a thoroughbred. He can't relate. But the fact is, everybody's got some kind of trick to get through the day to get through the round, to get through the putt that they know they might yip. Um, and uh, so the, I think if you're, a, if you're a caddy, you become very uh, attuned to that. But another thing along the way is that I know this is true, even though it doesn't sound true. The fundamental struggles of the game are identical for all of us. And that's because the starting point for hitting a golf ball is the same for all of us. The golf ball is still, we stand over the golf ball, we have these ideas in our head about what we want the ball to do. And then this weird system by which we transmute, if that's a word, I'm not sure. I'll look it up later. Gary, you're better wordsmith than I. You probably know. But transmute, I'm going to look it up. The idea from the brain to the body to the hands to the swing. And the ball does something. And there's absolutely no way that that essential experience is not exactly the same for all of us, whether, you know, whether you're a middle-aged woman or whether you're, uh, uh, jo- jo- you know, John Rahm at the height of, height of his powers. And I think that's ultimately why golf is such a powerful fan experience. And that if you go to a tournament, like, you know, the Masters last week, you, where you and I were lucky enough to be there, most of the fans are golfers themselves. Just like this used to be true in baseball, and probably less true today. But if you go to fans, it's loaded with, you know, people who played Little League Baseball at some point. They have some appreciation for what it's like to step in a batter's box and have that ball uh, come at you. So I think golf's very lucky that it, that it's that so many of us who love the game know the game from our own experience. And the caddy, as, as you caddy, you really get to see that. Uh, as you caddy for a pro and play yourself and think about your own game, uh, you really can see that and sense that. The book is The Ball in the Air, A Golfing Adventure. It's available now. Um, you know, these three people um, that you write about, what I found really impressive was that this, for anybody out there, and you're going, well, yeah, this sounds interesting. It is. You don't have to know people. Everybody has, everybody's story in golf is different. And what, what I thought was, was so expertly done was, this was about their journey in life and how golf has intersected at varying points. And they're at different points in their lives. One is a young lady. One is, you know, I wouldn't call Ryan middle-aged, uh, but, you know, he's, he's approaching midlife. And, and, and obviously Sam is, is not in twilight because of his vitality and his vibrancy. Um, but, but this isn't about tournament results. This is not about how they won this, that, or the other. It's about how golf has given them direction and has always pointed them back to the game in varying ways. How did you do that? How did you achieve writing about their lives and make it enough about golf? Well, there's a lot in that question. And 
and I think I can maybe get at the answer uh, uh, this way. There's a couple of things I'd like to say about that. One is, and you know this so deeply in your own life, Gary, and I do too. Now, you played at a high level. I, I didn't, but that, that doesn't really matter for what I'm going to say next. At some point, you're not going to play at the level you once played. Tiger Woods has found that out. And suddenly we're hearing Tiger talk about the guys. When Tiger was at the peak of his power, he never talked about the guys. Never. Now, and we don't really know what it means when Tiger talks about the guys, because my sense of Tiger is he is private by nature and he needs to be private by nature because there's so many complicated things going on in his life that he can't let out. But having said that, he still talks about the guys and the relationships all the time. I don't want to make this about about Tiger, but we, you know, we all who follow golf, we hear him talking about Rory a lot lately. And we, of course, uh, he used to be Ricky Fowler, maybe to some degree still is Justin Thomas, uh, for sure. Um, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm really trying to make is that as you get along deeper into this game, it's about the relationships. It is always about the relationships. It's about the people you meet along the way. There's a, there's a guy in the book uh, named Tommy Blue. He's from Macrahanner, Scotland. It's a very remote town. He's my age exactly. I was with the guy for one th- the gen- for one three-hour round. The guy makes it sound derisive in some way. I don't want it to. Uh, I was with him for one three-hour round, and that round will stay with me for the rest of my life. Mm. Now, Gary, now let's just look at, and if this gets too personal, I want you to tell me, and I know there's boundaries here, and I know there's some things I can say. But if you look, Gary, I know you've been open about some of the struggles in your yes. in your project. But if you look at the relationships that started in golf and have extended to your life of recovery, well, I, I'm going to guess at some names here. You know, Billy Horschel, who's been open about you know yes. struggles. Billy Harmon is he a person in your life? He is a person in my life, absolutely. You know, um, we we've talked about Fred Anton as a person in, in my life, but Gary, if you think about your path to recovery its yes. a daily ongoing path and how deepened that path has been by the relationships you've made through golf. I mean, what has that been like for you, Gary? It's Michael. I wrote about it uh, a couple months ago, uh, just as we were, we were literally getting ready to, you know, five clubs have been in existence less than two years, launched the website a couple months ago. And the first thing I wrote about in the title of it was it, it's, it's not, it's not about the score. It's about the time. And in my reclaiming of relationships, not for one moment do I want anyone to think that, that, that golf keeps me sober. But there are things that golf provides me that helps in my daily recovery. And those relationships, that time spent with people who have always remained close to me, but more recently, three fraternity brothers of mine who I've made the effort to reconnect with. And we've gone on trips to Colorado and Nebraska and South Carolina and Georgia. That time is vital to me. It's vital to me, engagement, and, and not seeking the opposite, which is what I did for years, isolation. Mm. Um, golf and that connection to the game and through these relationships, and it's not me talking about my recovery it's me talking to these people about their lives and joking and, and making fun of each other for sculling a shot across a green. Um, it, is, it is an essential element to the things that I need to do every day. And I don't want it to be a burden. I want it to be a privilege. And, right. and, and golf is one of those outlets. It is, uh, it is a critical, critical component to, to the life that I need to live every day, Michael. 
Well, that is beautifully said. Uh, our friend Jaime Diaz, and you were kind enough to have Jaime and me on together maybe about a year or so ago. Uh, but what, one of the things that Jaime says, to, to be a golf partner, really just to be a golfer, but let's just say to be a golf partner, you really have to be empathetic. You need to be an empathetic person because, you know, you just said, you know, you, you, you're joking with your friend who sculled the shot over the green. But you know it's coming back at you in a good-natured way, you hope, or you, you would expect, because we've all done it. And, uh, I mean, like, I, mean, I have a lot of complicated feelings about Tiger Woods that I've covered in my whole life and try to, not my whole life, but his whole professional life and even before that. But, like, when he had the chip yips, when John Daly had the chip yips, I'm not equating the two uh, different things, different people, but um, I don't know how you could not feel sorry for him. Maybe sorry, maybe that's not the right word, but I think, you know, there goes I. Uh, there, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a starting point to being a good golf partner. You want to help your partner, even if you don't like the guy, your opponent, find his golf ball. First off, it's the ethic of the game that you're going to help. Uh, but second of all, you're going to need that help too at some point. So why wouldn't you help the guy find the golf ball? If the guy's about to break a rule, why wouldn't you stop him before he does so? I, uh, because you might be in that position someday, someday yourself. So golf has more yin and yang in it than almost anything in life that I can imagine. I know, Gary, this is true for you as it is for me. Like, I'm here listening to you, and I'm listening to the enthusiasm with which you're asking some of these questions. And, and I know where it comes from. Because golf is this undying mystery for you, as it is for so many people. I do not get bored of golf, period. I just don't. I just find it endlessly interesting. Uh, and I find people endlessly interesting. And I find the people in golf particularly endlessly interesting. So a roundabout way of saying um, it's, you know, some books are harder to write than others. They're all, none of them. You know, you're working on a book now, Garrett, and you told me just a little bit about you know, starts, false starts, starting again, learning from the best mistakes, keeping going. Uh, but you just keep trying to figure things out in this game. Like this is j- just one last thing about about you know the three the three characters uh, that you mentioned. There's a beautiful play, often misunderstood, called Our Town by Thornton Wilder. I know many people would know the play, and it studies life in three acts. And this book tries this book that I've written tries to do the same. Now, I didn't I never thought of life this way, but until I got going on this book. But let's say one's lucky enough. My dad lived to be 94. and My mom lived to be 88. Let's say one's lucky enough to live a 90 year life. Uh, And let's say you started golf at a young age. You could sort of look at golf in three different sections of, you know, zero to 30, 30 to 60 and 60 to 90. Uh, So I presented that idea to Sam Reeves, who's 88, going to be 89 in July. And then he said he thinks of life in three acts. This was his own thing long before, long, long, many decades before I got into his life. He thinks of act life. Act one is preparation, that zero to 30, roughly. Let's just call it. Let's not get too math-oriented here. But there's a preparation section of your life. There's an implementation section of your life. And there is a validation section of your life. And... I mean, that's just a little hint to how profound the man is and how he thinks about life. But uh, but if it weren't for, you know, the happenstance of a friend introducing me to Sam in the first place and Sam trusting me enough 
to talk openly about his life as Billy Horschel does with you and you do with him. Um, uh, I wouldn't be in a position to be talking about this with you now, Gary, or writing it up uh, in, in a book either. The, um, the, the story of Ryan French w- was very impactful, obviously, uh, to me on a, on a couple of fronts. One is somebody who, you know, covers the game and seeing the appreciation of somebody. It doesn't matter how they got to the point that they got to that you go to your first major championship. And for him, it was the U.S. Open. And you saw the light in his eyes and seeing this. My God, this is like, wow, this is this is this is extraordinary. But but how he got there, the vulnerability, the dark thoughts uh, the desperation that that he had in his life, he found himself in Las Vegas, really on the edge, on the edge of the edge. Um, was, was there the any? Yeah, was was there any hesitation on his part to share to the degree that he shared? That's a great question, Gary. The uh, yes, uh, there there had to be because uh, once something's imprinted like that, it's imprinted forever. He's he has a wonderful wife, and they have a, a very meaningful relationship, to say the least. I mean, that sounds so trite to say it. Um, it came out poorly. Uh, just having observed these two human beings together, you can see how they connect. Is really, I guess, what I'm what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Um, and they talked about uh, to what degree. Uh, Ryan should be open with me talking about the struggles of his, pardon me, Gary, the struggles of his private life. And one of the things he said is they have two young children and their two young children will have their own struggles in life as we all do. And they wanted Stephanie and, and, and Ryan, their own kids to know in the most honest way from a sort of neutral person, what their dad's own struggles were. Uh, and that it's okay. This is Ryan's phrase. Many have used it. It's okay to not, not be okay. And actually, there's something freeing, and not all people are built like this, uh, but there's something freeing about being open about it. And I think Ryan made the calculation that for him, that worked. That's not going to work for everybody. I don't think it's going to work for Tiger Woods. I really don't. Um, but it seems to have worked for David Ferrer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, God bless him. I mean, he's been through so much, but, um, uh, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's wired differently. Uh, uh, so yes, a short answer to your question is he went through a lot of soul searching before he decided to be so public and it was a calculated decision, um, rooted in the fact that he thought it would be good for his two young children ultimately. And again, I, I had reached out to him. I, I just, I hope that I hope that as this book uh, is digested by a lot of people, that he gets the same, you know, response that that I've gotten, whether it be from people who know me well or people who don't know me at all. Thanks. And and that's not the intent. That's not the motivation. Um, I hope he gets that because he deserves it. And and his work. I, I, let me ask you, just being around him, and I, I was I was consuming a lot of the stuff that you guys were doing at, at Brookline last year, um, and and his perspective, it was so damn refreshing because it was it not that you're a cynic, but there was an absence of cynicism. I mean, my my God, are you kidding me? Here he is at the U.S. Open. He's taught and and. The, the people yeah. that he was he was going up to, there was nothing. He didn't have layers 
of, of scar tissue, of, of cynicism just permeating through him, which yeah. just share with you just the experience of being around him that week. Yeah, that, that, is, that is really neat uh, that you picked up on that. And um, his great story for the week was, you know, not Matthew Fitzpatrick right. uh, you know, uh, winning the thing and not Phil Mickelson reemerging at a press conference. He thought that press conference was a joke. Uh, <laughs> were you there for that, Gary? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was. Uh, it was an act and a joke. Uh, I kind of didn't really appreciate what a joke it was at the time that it was happening. But Ryan, who has no trouble keeping it real, he immediately identified it for the joke that it was. But having said all that, his great story of the week, and he wrote a number of them, but the great story of the week was one about, a. I hope I have the name correct, Brady Culkins. Do you happen to know the name, Gary? Yeah, yeah that sounds right. I've got the book right here. But yeah, uh, go ahead and, and share and the, the, his story. Culkins, yeah. Brady Culkins was one of his Monday Q guys. Brady yep. Culkins is a legend of something that I knew nothing about. Gary, you probably Me did. either. Oh, you didn't? The no, Dakota not at Stewart? all. I had never even heard of the Dakota Stewart, but there's a thing. We all know the Hooters Tour. That's famous. And there's other mini tours. There used to be something called the J.C. Did you play J.C. Goosey? No, I, no, I didn't. No, I did yeah, not. Was that long gone by then? I, long okay. gone. Yeah. Okay. But there are these legendary uh, 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 tours. But the Dakota's Tour... I never had heard one word about it, but Ryan had. And uh, now Ryan grew up in the Midwest, which, which would definitely explain part of that. But there was a legend of the Dakotas tour named Brady Culkins, and uh, who was from a small town in Washington State. And he played his way into the U.S. Open. And, uh, and Ryan was like, this guy closed down. This guy never met a bar. He didn't want to close down. I mean, he was living like, you know, on the edge, to the fullest, whatever phrase you want to use. Uh, and uh, and Ryan uh, wrote him up, and it was one of the great great stories to come out of that U.S. Open. This guy, who was this you know late twenties legend of the Coach Stewart, playing his way, uh, a rough and tumble guy uh, into a U.S. Open, and Ryan wrote the life out of this story, and it was great. And uh, and the affirmation that he got, you know, from you sitting with, you know, maybe he was sitting. Were you? I don't remember where you were sitting uh, at Brookline last year, but he's sitting with Jaime and. And, you know, uh, Bill Pennington from The New York Times and, and other people is getting a lot of affirmation, which, you know, you can say, not you, Gary, but one can say whatever they want. We all want affirmation. Of course we do. Like, we all want to be told that we've done something well. Uh, and he found that he could do something well, something that hadn't even been part of his life at all just a few years later, but it was in, in this most unlikely character that he was writing about, uh, uh, Brady Culkins. And it was like a wake-up call, not a wake-up call, I shouldn't say that, because that would really be accurate, but it was like a reminder to me of what I try to do in my own writing life. It's like, try to find something that somebody else is not uh, is not doing. And he does that, you know, really every day of his life. Well, well, you obviously did it in this book, again, the, the title, The Ball in the Air, A Golfing Adventure. I do want to mention, because you, you said earlier, and you're, you're absolutely right, it's a niche sport. The idea that, that we are trying to advance this is, is some, you know, sport that, that can rival, you know, these, these big four sports, and at least not in this country. It's not going to happen. That's okay. Embrace who you are. And, and to amplify what you were saying about it being niche, so are these relationships. You, there are not many degrees of separation because as soon as I saw that, that, and I didn't know the degree that Sam Reeves was so close to Billy Armfield. If, you, if I made a list of the 10 people who changed the trajectory of my life at various points in my life, 
He's on the list. Billy Armfield was a member at Greensburg Country Club. I was on the professional staff there. I got the job at Seminole because Billy Armfield was a member and made a call to Jerry Pittman. And to read that these two men were, you know, bosom buddies at the University of North Carolina and, and Billy's dad. And I knew his family's background. Billy's dad was a member of the Everglades, got Billy and Sam on Seminole when they were in college and they saw Hogan in person that tickled the hell out of me, Michael, to, to read about a man who died a couple of years ago of pancreatic cancer and was gone in a blink. That man was a central figure in my life changing. If I didn't get to Seminole, my life wouldn't be what it is. There's no, no, no chance. Wow, Gary, I did not know any of that. That's really, really neat. Well, we, you, you might tell, Gary, the listeners who Billy Armfield is. So yeah, Billy Armfield was also a, a, a magnet and a significant figure in the textile industry and, and wound up becoming really the patriarch and the visionary of the Eagle Point Club in Wilmington, which, which did a one-off for the Wells Fargo Championship. And the people that he, I mean, when I got out of the golf business, who did I sit down? And he told me, do this, this, and this. And I did those things. Because he told me to do it, he was a, he was a, he was a really important figure, and was you know textiles in the Carolinas. Um, if you were a textile guy, and and were an important guy, I mean you were a kingmaker, and that's kind of you know that's what he was. Uh, and and the way you described him, he was the most Natalie clad guy <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Always so well put together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's who he was. And, and sadly, got sick and was gone in a blink. And, and, and his own dad was gone, gone in a blink, too. Uh, would, would you have known that? I did, uh, I did not know that. I didn't know yeah. that. So j- just to bring people in a little bit, this is really getting inside baseball. I'll make this very brief. But So the, the, this gentleman that we've been speaking of, Sam Reeves, this 80-year-old friend of, of ours both, um, grew up in a small town in Georgia. Uh, went to the University of North Carolina undergrad, joined a fraternity, and hit it off with another fraternity brother, uh, Billy Armfield. And they were both sort of, in their own way, fish out of water. Uh, even though Billy Armfield, as Gary, Gary was just describing, very Natalie dressed, prep school sophisticated, wealthy family. Um, but he, my sense of Billy Armfield from Sam was that, like Sam, he saw the world a little differently. This was not the cliche. These were not two great, made this great friendship at Carolina in the 50s. So, like, it sounds like one thing, and it is that thing, but it was also something else. Two young men who saw the world differently. I mean, I just think that's the truth from what from what Sam has described to me. And, uh, I mean, there are just people on this earth that do, that see the world differently. And, uh, uh, anyway, they, they, they went to... Uh, they went to Seminole in probably the winter of 55. Hogan's on the practice tee. They're like, oh, my God, it's Hogan. They can't get off the driving range into the first tee fast enough because it's just too much. It's Hogan. <laughs> uh, it's just it's a neat moment. It's an incredible, uh, incredible friendship. And uh, it's wild for me to hear, Gary, that that, that you knew the man. Uh uh, so anyway, he I'm, was, I'm yeah, I, I, again, I, I go back to these, these points in life that, that, you know, people do things and they become, we all need advocates in life for various reasons. And he was, Billy Armfield was, was, uh, a how pro- old would you have been when you, when you met him, Gary? 
I was 23. So he would have been sixties. Yeah. And, and again, just, uh, always maintained, uh, this connection always, what can I do for you? What, what do you need? If it's 10 minutes of advice, uh, if you need, if you need a phone number, uh, if you need me to call on your behalf, whatever you need, I'm, I'm there for you. It could be a five-year interlude. It could be, it could be 10 years. So yeah, to, to read that, like I said, it tickled me. I, I, I'm short on time. So let me, I, 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 I wish I had hours to talk about the issues in the game, but this is about the book, but I want to get you out of here with these five quick questions because I mentioned earlier about the experiences. Uh, yeah. I've got to have a quick one for you before you. Yes. Is, I know Peter Millar used to be a thing in your life. Is, still is. is. Still? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, is, are, is Peter Millar a sponsor? Yes. Yes. I'm glad to hear it. I would like to say that I'm wearing a Peter Millar shirt. <laughs> I have no allegiance to Peter Millar, particularly <laughs> Peter Millar as a person doesn't exist. I didn't wear, you know, quote for, you know, to, I'm not selling anything here. I'm making a public plea. <laughs> This is an all-cotton shirt with four buttons and a pocket and a hard collar. It's not that hard, people. Could someone... Now, I'm cricket. With all due respect, great people. I've met them. There's something just... They're trying a little too hard for me. Whereas Peter Millar is like, like, what did Arnold wear? We'll just make that shirt. But they're not making it anymore. So that's my question to you, Gary. Are you in a position where you could do something to bring back this most basic of golf games? I, I can make a call. You and I had this. Well, you and I had this conversation at Southern Hills last year, and hey, I'm in you, total. Yes, uh, we did. Okay. Well, sadly, it's a running theme for me. I've got to, I, I waste so much time on eBay just looking for cotton shirts because they're very hard to, to find. I uh, th- that Sam, shirt. Sam Reed and I had the same conversation because he's a cotton guy. He doesn't. He doesn't appreciate the polyester golf shirt. Can you imagine what the profit margin is on these polyester golf shirts? Oh my gosh! No, I, I believe me, I'm totally with you. When I see that shirt, I think of my dad coming home with a Pickering shirt from wherever it was that he had played yeah. around a round of golf. All right, let me let me get you out of here very quickly on these okay. f- five right. quick questions. I'll be, I'll be brief. Okay, the the caddy yard all time, anywhere. With the best stories that you could mine, if you could mine them all, what caddy yard anywhere in the world do you think would have the best stories? Well, these British Open caddy yards. Uh, and, uh, and in recent years, they've done a thing where they've like created a trailer. But when you've got Billy Foster, uh, for those that don't know, he now caddies for Matthew Fitzpatrick. He's caddying for everybody and their yes. mother. Uh, but just Billy alone, but all those European caddies. They're so funny and they're so insightful. Um, uh, Dave McNeely uh, comes to mind. Uh, there, there's numerous, but uh, uh, British Open European caddies. Okay. I'll be right there with it. Ryder Cup European caddies, I would put right there with it. No, that's a good one. All right. What is the best shot you've ever struck? It, oh, I've ever struck? Well, I made a one. Very, 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 very briefly. I made one hole in one. My caddy was a great young man who was, he was a recovery alcoholic himself. He was super involved in my golf game. He gave me a club that was not enough. I knew he was new in his recovery. I wanted to give him a little <laughs> boost of common, so I hit it for him. I hit it hard, and it went in the hole. All right. We all have a place we haven't played. What's yours? A place I haven't played. I've never played golf in Australia at all. So, and nor have was, I. Nor have I. Let's make a trip. I would love to. That is, I actually just, okay. I just wrote about the one place in this country 
not, not, not that, there are plenty of places I haven't. The one place that I am, I'm very keen to get to, and that's Crystal Downs. I'm sure you've oh, been there. I have, and I love it, love it, love it. I have a feeling that, that when we get to a show, you're going to say, oh, it's like Crystal Downs. <laughs> uh, but we've got to do it. So let's, make, let's put that on our list. I Come would love up. to. All right. What is the best book that you could write of anyone in the game that's currently under 40? Who's the most interesting subject? Oh, wow. That's really, 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 really a neat question. I, I'm going to write a book or someone's going to write a book about a golfer who's, who's under 40 and, and, and who would it be? Yep. Ooh, you know, I, I, right now of this moment, I just love this John Rahm. I love the way his mind works. I love the way he answers questions. Um, I love his story. I love that Bosque spirit. Uh, it seems a little obvious at the moment, but it is what's coming to my mind. I know that's part of what the, the game here is. I'll, I'll say John Rahm. Yeah, no, I, I, I listen, I appreciate the hell out of his pursuit of context to what he's doing, what others have done. There's a curiosity that he possesses. That's, I mean, it's actually quite inspiring. Um, all right, I'll end with this. The golf book you revisit more than any other. I, I have my answer. People are so judgmental about my answer. I'm scared of my answer. It's Golf in the Kingdom. Yeah, uh, I, I had a feeling that's what it was. Uh, people don't get it. A lot of people don't get it. Of course, a lot, a lot of people do get it. Michael Murphy, it's author, 92 one of the smartest, warmest, kindest, greatest people I know. But to me, a great piece of writing transports you in every way. And that book, every time I pick up that book, uh, it does. And it kind of reminds me of things that I, I like about writing and I like about golf and I like about Scotland um, and I like about life, really. So it, it really is uh, that, that first half of Golf in the Kingdom. For anybody who hasn't read it, just try the first 80-odd or so pages, I think. Give it a try. It's like golf itself. It's not for everybody, but for those for whom it's something, it's really something. Yeah, I think it's a necessity. If, if you do say that I'm invested in the game, you got to read that book. There's no doubt. I would recommend everybody to read this book, The Ball in the Air, a Golfing Adventure. Um, it, it just, it again proves that if you play golf, you have a story. We all have a story. Uh, and these are three really, really compelling stories. Michael, thank you for the time. Thank you for the friendship. Gary, you do this so well. This is such a pleasure. You know, thank you, Gary. Thank you for what you do. Appreciate Michael Bamberger taking the time. I had, honestly, like eight or nine additional topics that I wanted to get to with him outside of the book, but I do highly recommend it. You don't have to know these people. They don't have to be historic figures as far as accomplishment in the game. It's just another example of how the game can lead you down a journey that can be interesting for people who may never know you. But most importantly, all of his writing at the Fire Pit Collective is stuff you should be consuming. And I, of course, appreciate all of you listening and watching this Five Clubs conversation. Next week, the Solheim Cup captain from Europe. One of the fieriest competitors of all time, Suzanne Pedersen, will join us. See ya.